From Bregman MD, where we're all about psych solutions, I'm your host, Linda Corley, and this is The Breakdown with Dr. B. Sometimes life can be really cruel when unexpected tragedy happens. And and grief can set in and sometimes just seem insurmountable. Today, we welcome a guest, Susan, who went through not one, but two incredible losses and is here to help us understand the grieving process as well as her journey to surviving. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, Well, your story is incredible. And I think we should start in the very beginning of what happened, what was it, three, four years ago? Yes, exactly. Um, it started in 2017. Okay, so so take us through what, what happened. Sure. sure. Briefly, um, I lived a beautifully charmed life, an extraordinary husband, um, married 38 years at the time, two wonderful children, a very charismatic 32-year-old son, really loving, warm, extraordinary boy, and a brilliant, extraordinary daughter. Um, five years younger. David had wrestled with some demons, has had wrestling with addiction. And four weeks from his wedding date, he leaped off his building and committed suicide. That was August 18th of 2017. To say my husband, my daughter and I were devastated along with our family was an understatement, but we did understand what David wrestled with and understood the choices he made. I've never been embarrassed or shy about suicide and have come to understand how it is a selfless act, not a selfish act. Um, We went forward with our lives. Um, Michael and I grew closer together with our daughter. Um, Suicide can rip a family apart or bring them together. We were fortunate enough that it did bring us together. However, after a wonderful um, holiday vacation um, in January, Michael thought his gallbladder was bothering him, went to the doctor to find out he had a virulent cancer, was diagnosed um, mid-January, and died eight weeks later, exactly six months to the day, the 18th of the month that David died. So within six months, I lost my son and my husband, and we needed to pick up the pieces, my daughter and I, and move forward. And that's what we've been doing. And I've come to really understand grief and learn how to move forward with grief and make a really wonderful life for yourself. Well, where do we start with that? Uh, You know, I I, want to know that after the tragedy and the grief uh, that you were going through the grieving process and now helping your husband pass away, how hard was that? I mean, to, to be a support to him, or did you, did you just bury it knowing you had to be strong in his final months? Um, that's, that's a very interesting question that I've never been asked, actually. Um, Michael went in for a surgery, at which time it was unsuccessful immediately. And our entire family was there at Sloan Kettering. And the doctor looked at us and said, I'll give it about a year. And my daughter burst into tears. And we went for a walk. And I knew it wasn't going to be a year. I don't know why, just a sense. And um, I explained to her on that walk around Sloan Kettering that we had another chapter in our lives. And this was a right turn for us. 
and we were going to go and try to give daddy the best time we can. And we're going to make this work. And Elizabeth today, who is my major support and my best friend, said um, that was the most inspirational speech she's ever had, that we are going to make a right turn. We're going to make a life for ourselves. We're going to move forward, not move on. And I embraced every day as that day. I've learned from that point on not to try to look forward and to make plans, but to make the most out of where we are right now. And I'm living my life that way as well. And being a support for Michael was just a natural extension. I think I'm a caregiver and I love, love him so much. I won't put that in the past tense that it was my, it was my job. It was my journey. It was my pleasure to try to make his life more comfortable. Dr. Bregman, I know you are bursting at the seams to ask uh, some questions. You know, what comes out to me very strongly about your history is uh, your a bond with your daughter, Elizabeth. Uh, it seems like, you know, throughout everything you're talking about as a caregiver, you also wanted to be there for Elizabeth. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more uh, about your relationship with your daughter and how having a surviving relative, you know, so close has helped everybody. Okay. Let me start with the fact that um, we became very close to our rabbi during this from Central Synagogue, and he was a guiding light in this. And Michael was frightened about the death process, and he had a lot of questions. And Rabbi Salth would come over three times a week and talk to me. And one of the things he told me was his souls travel in pairs. So there was a great deal of solace and a great deal of comfort to Michael when I explained to him that souls travel in pairs. And I understood that if he needed to go to David to take care of David and be with him and leave me with Elizabeth, that I could understand that and I could forgive that. I could forgive him leaving me to take care of David as a parent. So I, I left him to go to David. And I am here with Elizabeth. Um, she, I've been, I'm very, very close to both my children. And Elizabeth and I are soulmates and very, very similar. So in my strength with her, and she has, as much as I've held her up, she's held me up in this process. My family and friends have been extraordinary. And the strength of my family, we have a very large family. Michael was one of four boys and I have two brothers. They have been absolutely instrumental in my recovery and my um, balance. They've been here for me. Um, my one sister-in-law who affectionately called Michael, her second husband, mourned him like a husband. My family has mourned my family like they were immediately directly involved with them. And that has been freeing and comforting and instrumental in my recovery. So my relationship with Elizabeth, um, she is me and I am her. Um, we compensate for each other's weaknesses and um, pick up when one is weak and one needs to be strong. We intellectualize a lot and we've intellectualized this process to each other and spoken about it at length. And that has been really important in having someone there who truly understands. And I think, you know, that the rabbi uh, helped you with is that uh, people travel in pairs and then you have Elizabeth and you made some sense of the whole thing. One of the things, you know, I hear, you know, that you've made such great compensations is, you know, that maybe you uh, would help people with kids who have addictions because, you know, that's really what happened with your son. Mm -hmm. um, and that could also be an avenue, uh, you know, for you to pursue, you know, at some point, mm -hmm. you know, but 
honestly, I think, you know, that you've done an amazing job, uh, you and Elizabeth. I'd like to meet Elizabeth. I think the two of you got, it, it just uh, have made such a brilliant compensation for something that was so difficult. And I think other people should kind of take, you know, a lesson from you and Elizabeth about mm-hmm. how well people can do, you know, in adversity like this. You know, speaking of lessons, Susan, you brought up about how wonderful your circle of friends and family were in. Um, How I'm wondering, does one speak to like when you're sitting Shiva or you go to a wake and a friend has gone through such tragedy? What is the right and wrong way to approach them and tell them how you feel? There is no right and wrong way. And of course, you always need to feel out your audience. There's some people that want to cry. There's some people that want to laugh. We found that irreverent laughter really worked for us, that we love people telling stories. And Shiva for us was soul numbing and mind numbing and one of the most difficult experiences I've ever had. Um, Michael's funeral numbered a thousand at Central Synagogue. David's memorial wow. service, David's memorial service, pretty close to that. They were very wonderful, charismatic people. And we had as many people to be received in our home. Sitting Shiva six months in that kind of catastrophe was extremely redundant and extremely difficult. That being said, people would say they'd start telling stories and I want to hear every one of them. To this day, I love to hear the stories about David and Michael. It keeps their memory alive. Um, David and Michael are very much a part of both myself and my daughter. They created a big piece of us. We are who we are because of them. And that's why I feel so strongly about moving forward and not moving on. I don't ever want to erase them. I want to keep them on my shoulder, keep them in my next relationship, keep them in my career, keep them in my day-to-day life because they're so influential in who we were, are, will be. So I think to people that are sitting Shiva that are at wakes, oftentimes those stories, particularly the affectionate ones, the ones of kindness are really wonderful to let them know that you're not afraid of their death and that you're going to keep their memories alive and keep them in your life. Um, There's a lot of stories, as I said, that become irreverent that we laugh about. And and I think it was President Biden, and I'm going to paraphrase, who said the day that you tell the story and don't cry, you tell the story and laugh is a transformational day. And I think that we quickly reached that point. Look, the tears are good. The tears help you heal. Pain helps you heal. But the days that that you chuckle and you laugh and you make fun are really healthy days in loss. One thing I think you emphasize here, you know, in the Jewish religion, we have the Shiva process. Okay. And what happens here in our culture is that Unfortunately, we're so busy, you know, doing life that, you know, uh, in our culture, maybe outside the Jewish religion, especially, uh, there isn't like this process that people get together ongoingly almost every day and they tell stories and they remind each other, you know, about what's going on and we keep pay attention to it, you know, acutely. Okay, so I believe in this process. I think that it that was also one of the things that really behind the scenes has really helped. And it's something that I really believe in and has been lost in our culture. You know, that people go back to work after losses like this in a week. 
and they never mourn. And then they wonder, because they see me later, when something else happens, a loss, and they don't understand why it's such a catastrophe for them, because they never deal with the bigger loss. They never did a shiva. You, you've done a lot of good, healthy work, you know, to get where you are, you know, at this point. I think that COVID was the greatest example to all of us about how important these rituals are, whether it's the wake or it's Shiva in that people that didn't have the funerals and didn't have Shivas and weren't allowed to mourn and weren't allowed to hear the stories and totally involve themselves in the process are really crippled by it. And the saddest part is it can never come back. And I think these people really hurt and really feel a loss that can't be compensated for because the process went away. Shiva and wakes and, and things like that are done for a reason. And they weren't religious. They were practical. And they really, really helped the mourner. When I was talking to Susan about a week ago, you had brought up the hardest question you were asked for years after the tragedies and the deaths. And, and you said at first you didn't know how to answer it. And it would be a question a mother would be asked. So how many children do you have? And you would just bulk at that question. That is the hardest question and the hardest circumstance that I have coped with in this loss. And for any parent and sibling, when someone says to you, how many children do you have? And it's such an innocent question. And you swallow and you just you decide in a split second how much you want to bring that person into your life. At first, you say, you know, you can say two, and that's the end of the conversation because they don't want to hear anymore, or they'll ask you how old they are, and that's it. But if it's a person that you're going to have some sort of interpersonal relationship with, and you need to go further, oh, really? What's your son doing? And then you think, oh, how am I going to get out of this? But in that, I've always felt that I have, I have two children. I gave birth to David. I raised him. He's a part of me. I love him. I currently love him. I need to honor him by saying, I have two children. Dealing with it from then on becomes a little bit of a tap dance. And again, you have to evaluate where this person is going. You can say two and, and, and walk away. You can get into it with them. Um, I did explain to you that when my daughter first started dating after this loss, she came to me devastated. She said, what do you want me to do? The, the, the boy will say to me, oh, what does your father do? Oh, my dad just died. Oh, really? Do you have any siblings? Oh, he died. It's a very awkward, very difficult place. And I, as a widow, people knew I lost my husband. And then they say, oh, how many kids do you have? And I, so many times I can remember the exact place where I said to people who I've let, kept in my life, you know, I have two children. I lost one of mine. And when I approach other people, particularly women who have lost children and say to them, what do you say when someone asks you how many children you have? And they burst into tears. No one's ever addressed that. No one's ever asked me that. And it's the most difficult thing I can deal with. And I can honestly tell you, I don't have a pat answer. It depends where that person is going to be in my life or where I anticipate them to be in my life. But you end up spending a lot of time saying, it's okay, I'm okay. And, and you look silly and you feel ridiculous. So it's something you need to work out as a parent about where you want to draw those people in and how you want to relate to the child that you lost. The way you've gone about it is like seeing about the situation, how much you really want to tell. It, you understand, you, you don't have to tell too much. It's all very personal. I think it's a very healthy attitude and way to go about it. I really think you've done a great job on that. Thank you. You know, now we are uh, years later, 
And I am so impressed with your story now. Tell us about it. Catch us up with where you and your daughter are today. Wow. How long do you have? <laughs> oh, I know. And in fact, I want to tell our audience that there is the second chapter, which is a wonderful, wonderful podcast that we are going to do soon. Okay. Let me start with Elizabeth, okay. who, because of these catastrophic losses, looked right in front of her and found the most extraordinary man in her life, who was her best friend, who understood it all, who knew the cast of characters, who loved her throughout and ended up marrying him, um, married him in May of this year. And they are the most extraordinary couple. And he is such a wonderful, wonderful addition to our family. And I don't know that she would have seen this opportunity had it not been for the losses that she went through and understanding the value of someone who was just so involved. The reason that she was hesitant was because they worked together. And then she saw that this kindness and this appreciation for history and this goodness was what she really wanted. As I have said, she found a man that looks at her as my husband looked at me. So I am forever grateful for that. So that's her silver lining. For me, it was a matter of moving forward and not moving on. Um, I'm a college counselor by trade, a journalist. Um, I was fortunate enough to do a podcast on catastrophic loss during COVID. It went viral. And I've um, embarked on this journey of explaining to people how to recover from grief and moreover, how to redefine your life, how to be in your 60s and date and love again and care again and do things on your bucket list and self-actualize and become the best you you can be. Because in all of this, the silver lining to it is you have choices and you get to reinvent yourself and you get to do things that you never thought in that you can actually make a really wonderful place for yourself. And that's what's next, dating you, and loving and caring and redefining yourself professionally and personally in your 60s and moving forward. Well, I can't wait to hear about that one. But I want to know, where do we find your podcast? Because we want to mention it. We also want to put it up on our podcast. Thank you. So if you go to susanswarner.com, my story is there, my writing is there, and my um, podcast is there. SusanSWarner.com. That's fantastic because you are such an inspiration. You really, really are. And thank you. Thank you for being part of this. And we will be talking very soon. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Talk Bye-bye. to you soon. Bye-bye. From Bregman MD, you've been listening to the latest episode of The Breakdown with Dr. B. If you'd like more information or to speak to one of our top psychiatrists, just head to our website at BregmanMD.com to book a telepsychiatry visit from the comfort of your home. Hope you've enjoyed our latest podcast. Catch you next time.